0: Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. It's Lisa. Welcome to a brand new series of The Lisa Show. If you're a newcomer to the show, I'm an actor and a comedian, widow, single mom of five, a bunch of other things. (laughs) This podcast is dedicated to finding ways to make life better from the big things like mental health and parenting to the small stuff like fine-tuning the perfect recipe for nachos. I'm in it to live intentionally and finding the good in life. And if you've been on this journey with me for a while, you'll know that there are certain topics that keep coming back, whether we plan them or not. One of those is the role of creativity in a good life. I have a lot of friends who are creatives, artists, filmmakers, musicians, designers, you get the idea. So inevitably, creativity was going to keep coming up anyway. Welcome to my life. But we're taking a moment in this series to dive deeper because underneath all the fun conversations, there's something so critically important that I can't afford to gloss over it. One of my most recent creative projects was an improv comedy TV show called Show Offs where we made up musicals on the spot and I got to do it with my friends, I mean incredible performers that I love and trust and it was the most amazing experience. And there was a moment of deja vu after each performance that I'll never forget. Our audience, everyone who came to these performances, were so generous. They'd come up to us after the show and tell us what they loved about it. And there was this one thing I heard, word for word, over and over again. With great enthusiasm, a kind person would take both my hands, look deep in my eyes and say, I could never do that talking about musical improv. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I promise you I'm not. I mean, it's almost unsettling. I have heard that phrase in that context or a similar one literally hundreds of times. I could never do that. There's something about it. I have a visceral reaction to those words. And I know it's just someone just trying to pay a compliment and it isn't that serious. But I know a lot of people who say, in general, I'm not creative. As if it's a fact or say, I don't consider myself a creative person, but I like to blank, you know, like insert a creative pursuit. And others who will say, well, I'm not very good, but I like to and judge the effectiveness of their creative pursuit in the same breath that they're admitting they do it. It just feels wrong to me. At this point in my life, I know better than I ever have that creativity is part of something divine. Creativity has grounded me at times in my life when I had nothing else to hold onto. It's helped me express experiences and feelings I didn't have the words for. It's a lifeline. It's empowering. It's a mysterious source of good things, and it connects me to my Creator. And it's not just me. Over thousands of hours of interviewing people who are at the top of their field or who've been able to overcome the most difficult obstacles and certainly those who are the most content with their lives, I keep running into this common theme. Happy people have a great relationship with creativity. They value it. Beyond helping their careers, creativity heals people, breaks up monotony and restores momentum in life. So that's why we're doing this mini-series. Over the past year, we've been talking about self-care, body image, online presence, all of these different ways to understand yourself and enrich your life. Creativity is one of the most powerful ways I know to feed your soul. And there's much more at stake that appears at the surface. Owning the creativity inside you is a critical part of your identity, spirituality, and well-being. I've assembled a dream team to help us unlock our inner creatives. From scientists to my brother, James Valentine, from Maroon 5 to Rebel Moms with Naked Crayons. More on that in a moment. Right now, I'd like to dedicate this episode to anyone who's thinking, is this really for me? Or especially if you've ever let the words, I could never do that escape your lips. If you've ever doubted your own creativity, and hey, I've done it too, I mean, I got my things, then stick around because we've got the antidote. And it starts with understanding one of the biggest reasons why we all see this so differently. Reasons that have less to do with your personality or creative background and everything to do with how we interpret rejection. I want you to hear a conversation I had with Doctors Lynn Vincent and Jack Goncalo. For the past several years, they've been studying creativity hands-on, and they know better than anyone the misconceptions and miscommunications that happen around this whole concept of being creative.
1: I think a lot of people think creativity and go to art, Mm -hmm. and that's not how... Jack and I and other researchers talk about it. We talk about the generation of something that's both new, but that's also practical, relevant, solves a problem. And I think a lot of people have these myths of creativity where we think of the creative giant, so you have to be like excessively creative. Um, And that's not true. It's a skill that can be learned and you can train and just, you know, build those skills. And I think a lot of people think of it as like the lone wolf process. And that's absolutely not true either.
0: Just pausing here for a moment. The lone wolf trope is a stereotype about artists. You see in books and on TV the tortured solo artist who can only do their best work in isolation. And though there are probably people out there who fit this description, science doesn't really back it up. For most of us, creativity is a connecting experience that brings us into contact with others. Something we're going to dive into more the next episode. But right now, I want to focus on what Dr. Vincent is saying about creativity being a skill and how this is one of the easiest ways to misunderstand creativity, thinking that it's a born trait rather than something you can learn and practice. It reminds me of something that Gene Perret said. If you recognize that name, he was one of the great comedy writers and teachers. He wrote for Carol Burnett, Tim Conway, Bob Hope, and he also wrote books, encouraging people to teach themselves to write comedy. In one of these, he described how other people in the industry would insist that no one could write professional comedy except professional comedy writers. But Gene noticed at the same time, they would boast about how long they had been in the business implying that the years they had spent honing their craft made them better and more valuable. In other words, even the most egotistical pros, who like to pretend that they had a rare skill that only a few people could possess, couldn't even brag about it without revealing the truth that in reality, they just had a rare amount of practice. And in comedy, where it's easy to think of people as being naturally funny, this kind of attitude could be really discouraging for someone wanting to try their hand at something new. Jean Perrette, king of comedy, was adamant. Anyone can do it. Creativity isn't a lottery. It's a skill. And our researchers agree. I'm going to let Dr. Goncalo explain the scientific definition of creativity, and you'll notice that it lines up right with this idea.
2: The great thing, there is actually wide agreement on the definition of what creativity is in our field, and Lynn, you know, hit the nail on the head, and I think, you know, some people think of creativity as just, I'm just going to say something wild and unusual and crazy, you know, and I'm just being creative. No, you're not. You're just spewing nonsense. You actually, <laughs> to be creative, you have to actually propose a solution that no one has considered before as novel in some way. Um, and so that makes it very practical. And we're both in business schools. And for that reason, you know, we're, we're not interested in creativity as a fanciful kind of random thing. It's really... And and I start all my classes with the same speech, that you may think that you're not creative and that it's hopeless, but I really believe, or I wouldn't be teaching this for 20 years, that everyone can learn to be creative, and it's not just something that is for the few who just happen to have talent. And so it's learnable, and it's a process, and it's something that we can all be better at.
0: I find it pretty encouraging to hear this from an academic perspective. Everyone can learn to be creative. And even though this is something I already believed, I've been a little surprised how universal this idea is. Not only are researchers, but other artists, professors, and thought leaders that I've spoken to have expressed something like this right off the bat. Everyone is creative. We all have that potential. Which leaves a pretty obvious gap If the science confirms what creative people intuitively suggest that we're all creative, why do so many feel like they aren't? As it turns out, there's a lot of research that explains this too. And I wanna tell you a story from my own childhood. I would say I grew up in a creative household. My mom would put on music and ask us to draw or paint what we felt growing up. She hated coloring books and insisted that we have an endless supply of blank paper and crayons, markers, pastels instead. I remember her telling us kids how this got her into trouble. As a new public school teacher in North Carolina, she took the paper off the crayons to show the students that they could use the crayons in different, bolder ways to shade. Imagine her surprise when she was called out by the principal as a teacher and reprimanded in front of her colleagues. That was against the rules. And when she told this story to us kids, she laughed about it like, can you imagine getting mad about something like that? Like there's one way to use a crayon. She also got in trouble. And I don't know what get in trouble meant. Like maybe a stern look, a public call out. I don't know for doodling during a staff meeting. And she just explained to us kids, it helps me concentrate. And of course it did. We reasoned as kids, we were the same way. Yeah, my mom was a rebel. I think back to this and I kind of laugh at a principal getting mad about how the crayons were used or about a teacher doodling in order to focus, but it really reveals how we feel or how we have felt about doing things in different ways. It reveals fears we have about creativity, that it will be destructive, ruining crayons. that we need to perform a certain way to show we're listening or contributing, and that you have to hide it or present it in a set way, like creativity is kept to a painting or a new song. And creativity is performative. We look creative in certain times and places, like it should be contained in a single art class and doesn't belong, say, in math class, which is just not true. It makes me wonder what other unspoken rules there are about creativity, and how does that get in the way of real ingenuity, higher-level thinking and play, and just better ideas? In my conversation with Dr. Vincent and Dr. Goncalo, I learned that this little story about my mom is actually a perfect example of something that happens on a large scale, which shapes how we view our creative potential both as individuals and as a society. You'd think that we should be forming these creative identities in creative spaces, on a canvas, at a piano, on stage. But it turns out that most of us are sizing up our own creative potential in the least welcoming environments to creativity, which are all around us.
2: I think it's really tough to be creative in most organizations because at least when I started in the field, you know, like 20 years ago... There was a real emphasis in management on the importance of fitting in, of Mm. resolving conflicts immediately, of, of, you know, getting people to like you. You know, there was a survey in 2003 that was done on the American workforce. And they're asking people, what do you need to get ahead at work? And number one was be a team player, which was ahead of knowledge, skill and ability. So it's more important to get people to like you than to actually know how to do your job. And so one of the themes in my work has been that we need to create a culture that permits people to stand out, to be different, to actually engage in conflict, um, to have debates because that sharpens your thinking. And that kind of culture is one that fosters uh, people's willingness to take risks and to be different and to maybe even experience rejection. You know, one of the things that we found is that although it's not a lone wolf process necessarily, You have to be fairly comfortable being different and being an outsider, at least for a while, because creative ideas aren't accepted right away.
0: This point, which Dr. Goncalo is making about being comfortable as an outsider, it makes me wonder what would have happened if my mom had decided that the school principal was right. I don't know if she ever would have shared that story with us if she had been embarrassed about it, but what if, instead of laughing off a ridiculous administrator and embracing her own different way of thinking, what if she had taken on that rejection as a failure? And in that alternative universe, if she had shared the story with her kids later, would it be a cautionary tale? In my mind, this story was about crayons. But now I'm noticing that if my mother hadn't been comfortable with her own uniqueness in situations like this, especially when it wasn't appreciated, I might have a completely different perception of creativity. Being a rebel like mom, a crayon rebel at least, was a good thing and it made me want to be creative like her. Dr. Goncalo explained that when it comes to the hurdles facing people who want to be creative, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And you guessed it, we're back in the workplace.
2: So the colleagues and I have to work on you know, showing a bias against creativity that's not even conscious. Really? So people will tell you at work, we really want your creative ideas, but when you share them, oh, but not that, right? That's just too weird. That's too risky. We're going to go with the practical one. And it's something people aren't necessarily aware of, but it drives... Decisions. And we also have a paper showing that if you share creative ideas, you're viewed as having less leadership potential. So it's not that we don't like you, but you're too weird and unpredictable and quirky, and you're suggesting things that are outside the box and so forth. And so we, we don't mind having you around, but we will not let you take charge. And so one of the things people complain about is that we have a lack of creative leadership. Well, We're too afraid of being creative to allow people who actually are to filter up to the top. So it's a real challenge. And I'm not so sure that the onus is on the employee to solve this problem because they do want to keep their job. It's really on upper management or whoever is involved in creating a culture that allows creativity to emerge. But You know, my advice for an individual employee who wants to be creative is you should be very, very careful, because if you want to keep your job, you are taking a risk at being creative. And I think that if you're on the management side telling people that you want creativity, but you're not willing to commit to it or create an environment that allows it to occur, then um, you're not going to get what you want. And I think that's the the real
0: Hearing about the unconscious bias in our world against creativity puts a few pieces of this puzzle into place. On the surface, creativity is this abstract concept that we can easily acknowledge is a good thing, like love or dreams or friendship, but in practice, offering ideas that fall outside of what people are used to can be socially risky, and rejection hurts. So in a world that de-incentivizes bold moves and rewards stable traditional thinking, it's no wonder that so many of us doubt our creative potential. In a moment, we're going to get into why that risk is so worthwhile and what we stand to gain, even if it means facing rejection and failure. But it's important to recognize that we're living in a world which constantly reinforces a I-could-never-do-that mentality.
2: This is deeply rooted. I mean, there's work showing that teachers actually dislike students who are creative. So this is, you got to start really very early. Oh, man.
0: This is deeply <laughs> embedded in the culture.
3: And
2: right. so... In a sense, people who dare to be creative are, you know, really taking risks that benefit all of us. And so in that sense, it should be celebrated. And I think at some level it is if you manage to succeed. Um, right?
0: <laughs> or if you become really wealthy or famous, then it's, you know, and your story's well known, but you know, if you just sort it. of fly under the radar in you a know, very we don't creative not the way. bodies on the side of the road. Right. Um,
2: we, there's another project, too, that I'm working on with colleagues, uh, Carmi Tabmore and Verena Krauss are at different schools, but looking at this sort of um, myth of the organizational hero. So we all want to believe that if you disobey your manager and you go out and you take an entrepreneurial risk and it, it works out, that you're going to be treated like a hero, that you're going to be, you know, and there are examples of this, right? But we found no evidence of that at all. We really? found that even across many studies, even if you take a risk, disobey and succeed objectively, okay. that your manager is just threatened by you and you receive a lower evaluation. So the way, if you're working within this system, the way to get a better evaluation is by obeying orders, even if it ends up failing. And it's just so depressing to me. And that's why I'm glad that you are, you know, encouraging this conversation, because I think it's one that, you know, I think we've all experienced at work where you're told to be creative or that risk-taking is good, or even we're after success. And when you do, you're not, really treated well. And so the question of how we tackle this, I think one way is just by talking about it more.
0: Dr. Goncalo said that this is a little depressing and I agree, but he and Dr. Vincent conducted another study we're gonna hear about before the end of this episode, which changes the whole conversation about rejection. He mentioned that talking about it more is one of the first ways we can combat this environment that most of us find ourselves in that can hamper our creativity. And in that vein, you may remember that a few years ago, Sal Khan, the creator of Khan Academy, put out an article titled... Why I'll Never Tell My Son He's Smart. If you haven't read it, go find it. It's phenomenal. In it, he breaks down some research done by Dr. Carol Dweck about the way people approach learning and the differences between fixed mindset and growth mindset. And if you have a growth mindset, which anyone can, you see the value in your struggle, not just in your success. A growth mindset appreciates the effort as opposed to just appreciating talent or a perceived trait. In essence, a growth mindset could be the antidote to the kind of rejection which would keep us from exploring and appreciating our creative nature. And the best part, as Sal pointed out, is that just being exposed to this idea, the one we're talking about, is enough to make a change automatically. If you're just willing to entertain the idea for a moment, your mind can begin dismantling some of those limiting beliefs about whether you are or aren't good at something. I had a conversation with my brother James about his creative process. You may know that he's the guitarist in Maroon 5 and music is his life. He shared with me a little bit of his relationship to failure and rejection and the mindset which keeps him going, especially when creativity for him is a full-time pursuit.
3: One thing that I think holds back people from from applying creativity into their own lives is fear. Mm-hmm. And... In the case of creating music, it's the skill of being okay with making embarrassing, cringy, bad stuff. Like, in terms of songwriting, you have to write so many bad songs to get a good one. That I think sometimes, like, the best songwriters, they're just more okay with being cringy. Wow, (laughs)
0: that's profound, though. The best musicians are okay with being cringy.
3: Yeah, if you get into writing songs, it's because you like music you've got, you probably have a little bit of discernment. You've got good taste. And when you start writing songs, they're gonna be bad. And so you're gonna to have to be okay with that for a while. And then even after you have you think you've written a few good songs, you're still gonna write some stinkers every once in a while, or more often than not. So you just have to be okay with that. And so I think, however you're gonna apply creativity in your own life, that's something to keep in mind. Not everything's gonna be great and you gotta be okay with that because you learn way more from those those songs that failed than the ones that work. I heard Ed Sheeran talk about it once. He, he talked about turning on a faucet in a house that hadn't been turned on for a long time. <laughs> when you turn it on, it's gonna come out with that brown sort of rusty water for a while until it starts running clear. And I think creativity is, is very, similar you gotta let the rust and and dirt come out first and then before it's gonna get clear and, and you get that that good stuff.
0: Knowing my brother, it's honestly a little hard for me to imagine him writing songs that are bad. I mean, come on. He's at the top of his game. (laughs) He's worldwide. But it is comforting to know that no one is immune from this process. Even the giants, like Dr. Vincent mentioned earlier, the people who are excessively creative and who make art at the highest levels, they have to face the same risk of rejection. And nobody does their best work all the time. As a side note, there was something in this conversation with my brother that I didn't even notice until way later, but which stands out to me now. It relates back to that phrase, which still rings in my ears, the, I could never do that, which people have said to me so many times. James and I were talking about home repair because my garage door just broke. And anyway, still thinking about creativity, James said this.
3: And, you know, it's like when I just had someone here repairing my front gate, and, you know, I feel like I should understand how this thing works. I have no idea. And this guy, he's an expert and he's able to, to make all these connections and infer instantly what's wrong and then take, you know, a pretty creative pr- approach to how to solve it. I've got a real respect for, for that kind mm-hmm. of craft because I never really learned how to do anything myself with you <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's even you know close to to handy, and I, I do find that to be a very very creative skill um, that that takes a, a whole level of problem solving that that I just don't have.
0: A whole level of problem solving that I just don't have. Did you hear it? It almost sounds like. I could never do that mentality with a big difference. And I have to give James credit because he pointed out that in this case, gate repair is a skill. And the reason he doesn't have it is because he's never learned. And for someone who puts in the time, and you'll hear more about James's rockstar creative methods in a later episode, but for now, just know that he really does put in the hours. It makes sense to him that creativity, which he observes but can't relate to, is a skill he just hasn't developed, hasn't put the time in. Of course, I wasn't thinking about any of that in the moment, but in hindsight, I think this highlights what bothers me so much about the well-meaning thing that people have said to me so often. I could never do that. It's not the part where they're expressing what they can't do. James can't fix his gate. That's not negativity. It's just the truth. I can't cross-stitch. Nope, can't do it. I can't make homemade rolls, right? If I put in the time, more, I probably could learn. I don't know. There does come a point where it's not negativity. It's just a skill you haven't done. You put it to aside. You focus on the ones you want to do. It's the word never in that phrase. The implication that it's impossible, inaccessible, that in no future could this be a creative avenue they loved and were able to participate in. James can't fix his gait because he's never learned the skill, which would involve trying and failing and failing some more and possibly embarrassing himself. But I have a feeling that with James's attitude that he's developed over his career as a musician, that he'd be able to interpret that failure as something necessary. It's really not about what creative avenue you try or what your background is in that skill. It comes down to how you choose to interpret failure. Dr. Lynn Vincent summarizes this so well.
1: Well, I think you have to get really comfortable with some failure and rejection because creativity is hard. You're not going to get it right every time in that search for something that's new. You're going to stumble upon a lot of things that have already been discovered Um, in that search for something that's practical, that solves the problem. You're going to find a lot of things that don't quite solve the problem but it's going to lead you down a path. So you just have to get comfortable with not getting it right every time and saying, okay, this is the step and now I'm going to take this and continue on. In that completely bizarre idea, there might be something that can be transformed into something usable.
0: Choosing to make yourself comfortable, like Dr. Vincent is saying, with failure, with rejection, well, that's easier said than done. I can say that one from personal experience. It does not feel good. But even knowing that this is part of the process, knowing that rejection and failure are part of every creative's journey, that could make all the difference. Nobody comes out of the womb believing that they're not creative. That's taught. And thanks to this research, it's well-documented why and how that message gets taught so often. Societies, systems, communities all have an unfortunate way of squashing new and different ideas and the people who put themselves out there. So I'd like you to consider, if you're someone that believes that you're not creative, that this belief is a story you've been told because you were creative to begin with. Whatever resistance you met, whatever you did to encounter rejection, whatever left you thinking, I'm not good at this, is evidence that you're on the same journey as the greats, the giants, and everyone who's ever taken this kind of risk. And it gets better. Even though rejection and failure have the power to take the wind out of our sails, when we have a growth mindset, we can actually make them work for us. Dr. Vincent and Dr. Goncalo are about to describe an experiment they did with real people.
2: Lynn and I have a paper from years back where we actually looked at the experience of social rejection as something that can fuel people's creativity. And most people who looked at social rejection thought of it as this, you know, it's, it interferes with your ability to think, it makes you literally feel cold, it's a, it's a negative um, experience. So that was a fun one that took about a year to get approval for because it involved actually rejecting people when they arrived at the lab.
0: So basically, in this experiment, participants were asked to pick partners for a group project.
2: We told them, you're gonna be working with a group of people in the lab, so here's some people you might work with, we want your preferences beforehand so we can match you up.
0: They gather up everyone's response, and then privately, the scientists give each of the participants some painful news that they had been rejected by their peers.
2: And then when they arrived at the lab, we say, "Like, well, I'm sorry, nobody that you chose chose to work with you, um, so we're gonna have you do the task alone. Remember how hard it was to get Do
1: oh, you remember what happened to me the first time? <laughs> they sent me to do the rejection.
0: Oh yeah. man,
1: <laughs> you guys, I'm my heart. The very first person I had to reject, she looked at me with these big eyes and said, "Did I, was that bad? Did I do something
0: wrong? And then something fascinating happened. The group project was a series of tasks that unknown to the participants, tested creativity. The participants also had to answer questions that measured how much rejection they felt, and this is the kicker, how much they had an independent self-concept, or in other words, how much they valued their own ability to contribute independent of anyone else's opinion.
2: So we actually found that if you give people an independent sense of self, that I'm different and that's okay, when they actually experienced rejection, it really was sort of feedback about how being unusual is okay. And they actually were more creative as a result.
0: Did you catch that? For people who already believed that being different was a good thing, rejection made them more creative. The first time the researchers did this experiment, they were just testing people's mindsets as they were, however they walked into the door. But when they repeated the experiment, like Dr. Goncalo mentioned, they prepared some of their subjects by reinforcing the idea that being different was okay, even if it leads to rejection, boosting the subject's view of themselves and their value as an individual with a unique way of thinking. So not only is this an attitude that you can learn, but you can learn it fast.
2: Again, the key thing was people responded to it differently. So if we made people think of themselves as independent, yeah. right, that I, I don't rely on the group to know who I am, Ooh. then this information was like, okay, then, you know, so they don't like me, so what, you know? Um, yeah, I'm gonna move on and actually then it cues me to this, this idea that I am different and that's actually an asset when it comes to to being creative.
0: The results of this study proved that rejection, that same experience which can discourage us and shut down our creative risk-taking, and which has the power to train people in a false idea about themselves, I could never do that. This is the same thing which is fueling other people to be more creative than they would have been otherwise. With a little bit of reframing, this painful experience can actually unlock our creativity.
2: You know, you kind of have to have the attitude of like, you know, I know who I am and I know where I'm going and I'm okay with being unusual. So when rejection comes at you, you interpret that as sort of evidence that, yeah, I'm weird and that's going to be helpful for me. (laughs) That's going to give me a view of the world that's different.
0: When I hear about the power of this reframing attitude to turn what would otherwise be a painful and limiting experience into something that lets us embrace ourselves more, I think about the resilience I've seen in so many of my creative friends. When you own this identity of being different, of being creative, of having the potential to produce ideas that maybe no one will like. You have permission to love yourself the way you are, regardless of others' opinions. I believe at my core that all human beings, all of them, all of us, are inherently creative, and that feeding that part of your soul that loves to explore new ideas is essential to your core self. This is why we've started here as we explore creativity, because at some point or another, we've all experienced rejection. And it's never too late to start reframing that in a way which lets us enjoy the whole rich experience of a creative life. No one deserves to be excluded from that. No one needs to think ever about any creative pursuit. I could never do that. You can totally do that. Throughout my life, creativity has shaped my career and lifestyle, but more than that, it's saved me. It has connected me with the divine and allowed me to see God as the perfect creator. It's helped me understand the unexplainable. It's brought me pure joy. It's been worth every risk, every failed idea, every embarrassment, and every rejection I've ever experienced along the way. Whether you're a lifelong believer or a cautious skeptic, you have the potential to tap into that joy. And if you stick with me over the next few episodes, we'll do it together. Let's take the paper off some crayons. In the words of Jean Perrette, if the only people who took piano lessons were those who were assured of becoming virtuosos, the world would be deprived of a whole lot of music.
1: The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio, hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden, with help from Michael Combs and Avery Stonely, and music and post-production by Gracie Davis and Josh Fouts. The Lisa Show needs your help. In a few weeks, we're hosting the Council of Moms here in the studio like you've never seen it before, literally. We're filming 10 episodes. They'll be available later this year, here and on YouTube, where you can see it in action, and we want you to be a part of it. Find our pinned post on Instagram and comment questions and topics that you want the Council of Moms to cover. They can be serious, they can be goofy, somehow we always end up laughing anyway. But now's the time. What do you want to hear moms talk about?